You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. The history of God's workings, God's deliverance, God's provision had no present significance. They were just considered stories of old, regarded as embellished accounts, sort of like fables that were told and retold around campfires to impress the young. You see, times had changed and Israel wanted to be like the other nations. We may like the idea of a provident, benevolent creator who cares for, guides, and provides for us, but if that comes at the cost of our own will, it suddenly loses its appeal. Israel had directly experienced that benevolence and guidance in very tangible ways. God chose them to be an example for the world of a God-centered and ruled nation. But as Pastor Mike will explain in today's message, they chose their own will over God's, and the consequences have been harsh through the centuries. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8 as he begins his message, Give Us a King. I remember what you said, you returned that I might live in my Father's First Samuel chapter 8 verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. And by the way, I I think I should mention that it wasn't Samuel's right to do so. In fact, if you know anything about the judges during that particular period of time in the history of the nation of Israel, it was God who selected the judges. It was God who anointed the judges uh, to rule over his people, Israel. So it wasn't the right of any individual to do that. So I guess you might even say that Samuel was was in sin in doing that, and I'll give you the reasons why in just a moment. But let's go on to verse 2. Now the names of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. We'll talk a little bit in a moment about Beersheba and where that was located. But notice... And this was the reason why Samuel was wrong, notice, in electing them as judges, or appointing them as judges, but his sons did not walk in his ways. And they turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us 
like all of the nations. Now, I also want to mention, but we'll, get, we'll further get into this. But you know what? Uh, think about it. You're courting trouble when we're asking God to enable us to be like everyone else that is in the world. And isn't that exactly what they were asking Samuel to do, to make us a uh, king? So you're courting trouble when you want to be like the world. So let me set up this study for you. And to do that, let's back up a little bit and let's revisit the previous chapter. Remember, following the defeat of the enemies of Israel, that is the Philistines, Samuel then emerges as the leader of God's people, as a judge over Israel. And throughout the next 25 years, the hand of Jehovah, we are told, notice according to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13, was against the Philistines. That is, as long as Samuel was judging Israel, their enemies were unable to prevail against them. And listen, let me also add that that is exactly what godly leadership will do. That is, when someone who will you know, teach and model God's word for the people. And this is the very reason why we need to pray for godly leaders. And this is so very, very important. But that's the effect that a leader can have over God's uh, people. That is someone who is committed to teaching God's word, but not only teaching it, but modeling God's word and the effect that it has upon the hearer, upon the people that they serve is a godly influence. Well, anyway, now Samuel is probably about 65 years old and he's considered old by the standards of that day. And a new generation over his 25 years of service had arisen. And they had only heard from their parents how the Lord delivered them from their enemies. And so having been reared in a time of peace and safety, and that was the result of Samuel's administration over Israel, these younger Israelites took for granted the privileges of a theocracy. Now, when I refer to a theocracy, I'm talking about God solely ruling and reigning over his people. You see, they possessed, this younger generation now that had grown up, possessed no understanding of the benefits of having God as their uh, king. But you know what? The truth of the matter, even though they were living now in a time of safety and uh, peace, they should have appreciated the fact that God was ruling and reigning over them. I mean, what about their other enemies? I'm not talking about the Philistines, but what about their other enemies? For example, the devil, or temptation, or sin, or the flesh, which, if you think about it, is actually more powerful and dangerous of enemies, right? So they should have appreciated the fact that they, were, they knew God, that they were walking with God, that God was ruling and reigning over them. But there was no appreciation whatsoever. Well, they were seeking, according to our text, for another kind of administration. And they began to criticize their government. And they began to talk of the efficiency other nations enjoyed. And that's the reason why they were crying out for a king. And they questioned Samuel's ability, notice, to lead them. And they expressed their fears, and maybe rightfully so, that Samuel's sons might be designated to follow him. The two sons that we've already been introduced to, Joel 
and Abijah, notice there in verse 2, who were serving in the border town of Beersheba, which was located about 50 miles south of the city of Jerusalem. They served as civil administrators. Now remember, Samuel's circuit was confined to central Canaan. Go back to chapter 7 for a moment. We talked about this last time. And he served as a judge in those areas that are mentioned there in verse 16. Notice uh, in the previous chapter, Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And notice we are told, and he judged Israel in all of those uh, places. But now his two sons served as judges in the south. Now, let me also add that their appointment in Bathsheba was not an easy job. Uh, consider these young fellows. They were young, and they were immature, and they were sent with no guarantee of financial uh, support in Beersheba. They didn't have some church behind them. You know, they weren't sent out as missionaries with support from any particular church or ministry. You know, they didn't know what to expect. There was no guarantees. And then the local residents were suspicious of strangers and outsiders. And their remuneration or their salaries would have come solely from those residents who, again, were suspicious of strangers and outsiders. They were uh, completely uh, dependent uh, upon those uh, residents uh, for their uh, provision. They would contribute a chicken or a lamb uh, in gratitude for their uh, service. But again, there was no guarantee of that. And it was probably uh, during this time where these young fellows were having a difficult uh, time. And this was probably some of the reasons why they had been overcome by the prospect of making some money, and thus they gave in to graft, according to what our text tells us, and bribery, notice there in verse 3, and thus they collapsed under that weight. And obviously that influenced their judgments. But you know, this is sort of confusing when you consider that they were the sons of Samuel and how they should have benefited from their father's example. I mean, we've already discovered how that Samuel was steadfast, how he possessed great integrity. Obviously, it didn't rub off on his sons. His boys would have been, you would imagine, powerfully influenced by their father, Samuel. So what do we learn from this? Well, I think it's an important lesson for us to consider. While we may rear our children wisely, you know, the truth of the matter is we have no guarantees that, we, uh, that they will consistently, loyally be devoted to the Lord. There's no guarantees of this. And I know what some of the other verses of Scripture uh, tell us concerning about raising our children in the ways of the Lord. We'll get to that in just a moment. But although, let me also add, according to 1 Chronicles in chapter 6, in verses 27 through 33, we are given hope that these boys did finally come around because that text suggests that Joel, one of the two sons, perhaps Abijah as well, may have repented of their sins and established a godly home. Because there we are told in that text in 1 Chronicles that Joel's son is mentioned as officiating in the temple. And so remember then, a parent's failure is not final. 
Children, if they have the proper godly parenting in their formative years, and how important this is, that we instill within our children at a young age a godly heritage, then there will be no reason why they should not eventually become committed women, uh, men and women of uh, God. Now, that other verse that I've just referred to that I was thinking about, that you're probably familiar with, and those of us who are parents, you know, always holding on to this. It's recorded first in the book of Proverbs in chapter 22 in verse 6, where there we are told, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But I got to say, you know, this is, this is not a blank check. And uh, this is more of a principle than it is a, a promise. So once again, there is no guarantee. So listen, we really need to make that investment in our children at an early age to instill within them a godly heritage. And then we're just hoping and we're just trusting. You know, after we do everything that we can possibly do, and that's all we can do as parents, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they, they have the capacity of, of choice themselves. They're free moral agents. God has created them as such. There's no guarantee that they're going to follow in the steps of their parents. We're hoping and we're trusting and we're praying to that end. But again, there's no guarantees. But you know what? God's word never returns void. And we're just trusting that, you know, at the right time, as they're standing at their own crossroads, that they'll make the right choice and decision. Well, anyway, let's go on. Let's talk now about the request uh, that the people made of, uh, of Samuel. It's recorded first once again in verses 4 and 5. And basically, their cry was, now make us a king to judge like other nations. Okay, now let me describe the scene for you as best I can. In about the year 1044 BC, the elders of Israel have gathered together to discuss matters of national importance. They agreed on an agenda, and off they go to Ramah, which was Samuel's hometown. That's where Samuel was born. And this meeting may have taken place in a courtyard there within the city precincts or some street because there's a large company of people that have gathered together to make their complaints against uh, Samuel. Standing before Samuel, they made their desire known and their words contained a mixture of unjust criticism. Let's talk about those criticisms. The first of which was, notice, they said, Samuel, verse 5, you are old. And what were they insinuating? Well, that he was incompetent to continue to perform his duties as judge over Israel. The second complaint, your sons do not follow in your way. So in this, we find their condemnation and censure, not only of Samuel in verse 5, but also of his two sons. And then the third indictment, well, actually request, complaint, appoint us a king to judge us like the other nations. Also recorded for us there in verse 5, which was their consensus of opinion. So their words were full of dissatisfaction concerning having God as their king. And as I've already suggested, their history of God's workings, God's deliverance, God's provision, had no present significance. 
They were just considered stories of old, regarded as embellished accounts, sort of like fables that were told and retold around campfires to impress the young. You see, times had changed, and Israel wanted to be like the other nations. Now, let's consider Samuel's response. Let's pick up now in our text, verses 6 through uh, 9. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So I think basically God is saying to Samuel, Hey Samuel, don't take this personally. Because really their complaint is against me and really uh, not you. And then in verse 8, According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Okay, now notice, first of all, that this was displeasing to Samuel. Now, how did Samuel respond? Well, Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Now, for a moment, let's put ourselves in Samuel's shoes. Think about it. He had served the Lord and the people faithfully for a period of over six decades. And up until this point, there wasn't any complaints. Everyone seemed to be quite satisfied. But for all of his work, the people are now ungrateful, and he is rejected by the people. Okay, so how did Samuel deal with his rejection? And this is very important. Let's talk about rejection, because I think at one time or another, every one of us will find ourselves in the same position as being rejected by someone maybe that we love or someone that we've, you know, we've uh, invested in or, or uh, you, know, uh, you know, put some time in to minister to their, their needs. Uh, so I believe that sometime or another, you will have to deal with this very same thing that is rejection. I mean, the pain of rejection is very personal, isn't it? And it can have far-reaching effects on our lives. So let's further talk about the subject of rejection. Where does it stem from? Well, rejection, first of all, results from a couple of different ways. First of all, the denial of approval. You know, here you are doing the best that you possibly can, and uh, you don't receive the approval of the people that you're ministering to. You know, no one says uh, or remarks, hey, pastor, I really appreciate the job. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's happening here, because I'm, I'm always encouraged by the response of the people. I'm so blessed being the pastor of this church. And i got to tell you something, over the many years that I've served as the pastor of this church, well, I mean, at one time or another, you know, uh, you know I, I've run up against this sort of thing, people complaining and stuff. But for the most part, you know, I think that I've received the approval of the people and, and, people, and the people have appreciated the things that we've done because, you know, we're all in this together. 
and I really haven't gotten out of you know, the counsel of other people and doing the things that we've chosen to do. I, I think everybody's been, been behind you know, what we've done in the past. And, and uh, so anyway, you know, not getting the, uh, the pat on the backs and someone telling you you're doing a good job or you know, your work goes on. You could probably relate to this maybe at your place of employment. You know, you're putting in more than a 40-hour work week, and, and it seems as if your boss doesn't really appreciate the time that you're putting in or the contributions that you're making, you know, to, to make him successful or the business successful. So, you know, that might be one way that you'd run up against this sort of, of thing. So the denial of approval or affection or recognition for your labors, for your work, for your contributions. So all of these things can undermine our sense of worth, confidence, and lead to some sort of insecurity, helplessness, and frustration, as well as loneliness. Okay, so let's go back now to Samuel, who's facing this very thing. And how did he deal with this rejection? Well, notice, according to our text, what did he do? He took it to the Lord. Notice he did not argue with his accusers, right? that had gathered together. It was probably a, quite an impressive group of people. He didn't argue with them. What did he do? He made his appeal unto the Lord, and he prayed. And by praying, he was able to let go of his problems. You know, how many times have you felt you know, yourself in this kind of a situation where you're really bummed out? And uh, you feel as if, you know, why am I even doing this? And... Uh, you're just really disheartened. Well, you know, it's in times like that, you don't need to defend yourself. You know what you're doing. You know, if in fact you're being criticized because you're, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've not done what you've been asked to do, well, that's a whole other thing. But uh, if, if your work has gone on unappreciative, you know, you don't need to respond. You don't need to trade evil for evil. You don't need to defend yourself. Just make your appeal unto the Lord and take it to him in prayer. You see, for Samuel, it placed him in touch with the person, who was that person? God, who was a far more emotionally significant to him than the elders of Israel. You see, Samuel, I think, was more concerned about what God's estimation of him was than were the people's estimation. And this is, by the way, this is the way that we need to you know, walk through our life's experience. All of the things that we do need to be directed towards pleasing the Lord. And if we do that, you know, there, we shouldn't feel condemned. We shouldn't feel uh, unappreciated. Uh, we shouldn't feel, you know, rejected because we know that we're, we're doing what we're doing uh, to bring glory unto the Lord. So anyway, it was through prayer Samuel was able to discuss everything with the Lord. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. That's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. If you've missed any part of this message, you'll find it online at harvestnyc.org. 
You can also subscribe to the In My Father's House with Mike Venezio podcast. Just search for it on your favorite podcast platform. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to let you know how you can connect with us. We want to hear from you. If you've been listening for months or even the first time today, let us know. Have you been blessed by a teaching here on In My Father's House? Have you been able to share what you've learned with someone else? We want to hear your story. It's such an encouragement and brings us great joy to know how this program is blessing our listeners. So please, let us know you've been tuning in. You can send us a message right from our website. Just go to harvestnyc.org and click on Contact. You'll find a form to fill out and we'll connect with you as soon as possible. You can also let us know you've been listening by sending an email to harvestnyc at verizon.net. Please feel free to share your prayer request too. We'd be honored to join you in seeking God's direction in your life. Again, just email harvestnyc at verizon.net. If you're listening to our broadcast and aren't in the Manhattan area, We'd like to invite you to join our weekly worship services live on our website. We stream our gatherings on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more and connect at harvestnyc.org. That's all for today. Join Pastor Mike next time for another edition of In My Father's House. (laughs) 